0: If I can get y'all to stand with me as I read. We're in Exodus 19, 1 through 9. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Well, good morning. Keep your Bibles open to Exodus 19 there. We're going to actually try to get through that whole chapter. Um, we are getting back to our Exodus series. I hope you enjoyed our Advent study. I certainly did. Uh, it's uh, always a joy to hear from the pastoral apprentices and uh, just to, to be fed by them as, as they open the Word to us. I also personally enjoyed having a little bit of a break, so I'm thankful for those guys on a number of levels. Uh, But that just means I'm really excited about preaching this morning. So uh, I want to jump right into Exodus 19. Uh, Just as a a recap, we've been studying through Exodus since August, and of course in the the book of Exodus, it begins with the people of God, the Israelites, uh, in captivity in Egypt. And after some 400 years of slavery there, the Lord visits His people, He rescues them out, He delivers them from their oppressors. And then as we saw right there at the end of Exodus 16, 17, and 18, they kind of see their their enemies vanquished, so to speak. Uh, They they cross the Red Sea. The Egyptians are destroyed. And yet the people still have many problems. Uh, They're they're no longer slaves to Pharaoh, but it's clear that they're not yet ready to be servants of a holy God. And so the remainder of the book of Exodus in many ways is going to focus on teaching the people of God how to live in light of God's grace. And so, as you can imagine, there are a lot of parallels for us as believers, as we think about what it means to, to live as Christians, as those whom God has rescued from sin and death, and whom He has committed to continue renewing day by day, year after year, in His own way to fit us for His purposes. So, in this series, we're going to look at how God renews His people And today we're going to focus especially on this call to be holy. Uh, We heard it there in what Stephen read, and then we're going to see it emphasized as we get to the latter part of the chapter as well. But if you look at the beginning of chapter 19 here, uh, the first six verses I think really give us this this picture of uh, this call to be holy. Uh, The people have arrived at Mount Sinai. This is a big deal because even back to the beginning of Exodus God promised to Moses, I will come, I will get my people, I will take you to the mountain and you will worship me there. So they are now at the mountain that they've been making their way to since the beginning of Exodus. And here God is, is going to visit them. He visits Moses first. He speaks clearly to him. And he gives this opening statement that it's, it's really hard to overstate its significance, honestly. When you look at verses 4, 5, and 6, uh, some folks have called this really a, a summary of the entire Old Covenant. This is God's relationship with His people Israel in a nutshell. He's, he's sort of laying the groundwork and laying the terms for them as they're now going to proceed in this covenant together. And I think there's a lot we can learn as we look at it even from from our vantage point today. So look at verse four there that Stephen read a minute ago. He says, "You yourselves have seen." This is God speaking to Moses. He says, "Say this to my people: You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians." And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's old covenant language for salvation. This is God's retelling of how he has rescued his people. He says, look, you you saw what I did to the Egyptians. I I conquered them. They, They are vanquished. They are no longer chasing you. You have been set free. And then he says, you saw how I bore you on eagles' wings all right, there's this image of divine deliverance. And some of you are like me, you read that and you immediately think of The Hobbit, right? Or, or one of the scenes from The Lord of the Rings where the eagles kind of come into view and save the day. Right? Tolkien got it, of course, from this kind of image in the Old Testament. But think about that scene in The Hobbit uh, where uh, uh, Bilbo and the, the dwarves are, are in that battle and they're sort of backs against the wall. You're wondering, how are they going to get out of this? The tree's on fire. There's sort of nowhere to turn, and all of a sudden they hear this noise in the distance. and they see these eagles in the sky. and the eagles swoop down, pick them up and deliver them and set them in a safe place. That's what the Lord is saying He did to Israel when he swooped down into Egypt. He picked up his people and he put them in a safe place. He's saying, "This is what I did for you." Now you'll notice, and you may have noticed in the Hobbit as you read it or, or watch the movies, the people who are rescued, they don't contribute a whole lot to that. Right? They're sort of picked up by the neck and carried off. Israel didn't contribute a lot to its salvation from Egypt. It just kind of got in line and God did it all. And that's what he's telling the people. He's like, you've seen this. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I swooped down like an eagle and lifted you up out of this place. But then look at that last phrase, and brought you to myself. So the Exodus is not merely about getting the people out of Egypt. It's about getting the people to God. So there's this language of relationship here. God has brought them from the captivity of Pharaoh into his presence. And that that language of eagle's wings is picked up again at the end of Deuteronomy when, when Moses is kind of summarizing all of this to the people in his sort of farewell address. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. And This is how he describes what happened in the Exodus, what we studied last fall. It says, He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, the Lord alone guided him. That's, that's the picture God paints for his people. This is what I've done for you and there's, there's comfort in this, but there's some accountability, as we're going to see, too. You saw it. You saw it happen. You know the wilderness. You know the captivity you were in. You know your back was against the wall and you had nowhere to turn. And, and you saw me come in and swoop down and pick you up and set you in a safe place and bring you into my presence. So It's, a, it's an old covenant way of describing the picture of salvation, Now, our captive, uh, our captivity is is a bit different, right, than what the Israelites experience. But our rescue is no less remarkable. The Lord in his mercy has defeated our enemies. He has delivered us and he has brought us to himself. Just like that picture of the eagle swooping in and coming in. Paul says to the Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right. Back against the wall trees on fire, living through a personal hell of our own creation. God in His grace. There's nowhere else to turn. God in His grace is like an eagle coming down from the skies and swooping in and lifting us up and setting us in a safe place and bringing us to Himself. So that's the picture of salvation we see there in verse 4. And it's, it's the foundation for this call to be holy. So then we look at verses 5 and six, and God is going to describe the people's relationship to Him. But it's, it's very, very important that we recognize the order here. God is speaking to a people whom He has already rescued, right? As, as He's saying to them, if you keep my commandments, if you walk in my ways, He is speaking to a people who are already saved. We cannot reverse this in our minds. God does not come to Egypt. And say to his enslaved people, if you guys will get your act in order, I will come and get you. Now they have that conversation after they've been delivered. That's the conversation he has with us. The call to holiness comes after the good news of the gospel. And so we can kind of think about, we're going to talk about these categories more as we get into Exodus more, but we can kind of think of that in terms of the gospel and the law. Right? So, so gospel is the good news of what God has done for us. The law is the command of what God demands of us, right? So when we start talking about this call to be holy, we're talking about just in a big kind of categorical sense, we're talking about law. This is what God tells us to do. But he tells us to do this on the grounds of what he has done for us. We cannot reverse those in our minds. Or we start to think, if I do this, then I will get God's, grace. Now we get God's grace and then he calls us to live a certain kind of life. And so verse five and six kind of, again, put this in old covenant language for us. He says, now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he is he is calling them to be holy because he has brought them into his presence. And he's, he's making it clear. If you fail to obey, you will lose this blessing. So these verses describe who Israel is and also who they are called to be. And I, I want to just focus on a couple of phrases there because this is just such a sweet picture of the gospel that we find in the pages of the Old Testament here. God says to his people, you will be my treasured possession. That, that language is used in the Old Testament to describe the like, personal treasury of a king. You know, king David, you know, as, as king of Israel, essentially owned everything, right? But there was a personal treasury that belonged to him and him alone. And you can imagine that it was of great value to him. I think trying to understand that phrase, uh, it, it's one of those moments where maybe we could learn a bit from our kids. Uh, kids probably uh, tend to treasure possessions a little bit more readily than adults because they have uh, less of a sense of inherent value. So if you're a parent, you've all had the experience like we've had where you you take your kids to the beach, you pick up a few shells, you put them in a sacred place to carry back to the car as if they're the only shells of the ocean, right? (laughs) Shells are not of great value. There's nothing inherently worthy of them. But to a child, that seashell can be a treasured possession. And we know all about it. We have sacred rocks at our house. We have sacred sticks. There are things at our house that you wouldn't even know what it is. But it's a treasured possession to one of my children. And so it's kept in a special place, right? That's what God says of us. If you keep my word, you shall be my treasured possession. You're not inherently worthy of anything. (laughs) The love I've set upon you is not because I saw you and thought, wow, look at these people. They've got it all together. No, it's I've made you worthy. I've made you valuable. I've set my affection on you. And now you're a treasured possession. That's what God says to his people. And then he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is interesting language. Uh, priests are those who, who are entrusted to mediate the presence of God. Um, here, God is telling His people, all of you will be like priests. You will be ushering in my presence to the nations. But notice the, the path to doing that is that you're going to be a holy nation. Right? So that language of holiness is often described as being set apart. Right? So God is saying, I'm going to set you apart from the nations. You're going to be different than everyone. There are going to be things that they do, I'm going to tell you not to do. There are going to be things that they eat, I'm going to tell you not to eat. There are going to be things that they're comfortable being around, I'm going to tell you don't get near that. I'm going to set you apart from the nations for the sake of the nations, so that as a set-apart holy people, you can mediate my presence to the world. It's kind of echoing that language to Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And of course, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter applies this exact same language to the church. You're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That is who God has called us to be. So in in these phrases here, in in verse 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 19, I think we get this kind of picture of what God intends His people in the Old Covenant to be. And and much of it is, is very much the same kind of thing that He has called us to be. It's the same story. The details are a little different, but it's the same basic story. We ourselves have been rescued. We've been rescued from the captivity of sin and death. The Lord in His mighty grace and and mercy has has swooped in like an eagle. He has delivered us from, from the personal wilderness that we've created around ourselves. He's put us in a safe place in His presence. And now He calls us to be holy. Not in order that we will be treasured, but because we are treasured, because we're his people. He he's, he's set us apart, and he said, this is how you're going to be. This is how I want you to act. This is who I want you to be, and that's going to be distinct from other people, and it's actually for the sake of them that you must be set apart. You, you have to walk in holiness because others are watching. All right, so all of a sudden, this, this kind of sweet and comforting picture starts to feel a little heavy. So there's like a lot on the line here. I mean, we're we're set apart and we're treasured and we're valued. and, And like an eagle swooping in to save the hobbits, he came out of nowhere and he showed us his mercy. But now there's a call upon us. We're called to be holy and to represent him to the nations. And it's almost as if God anticipates the Israelites maybe maybe sort of keying in on the good news there and and ignoring the challenge, ignoring the call. Because if you read through the rest of the chapter, it's almost like a big grand underline of that call to be holy. Like, lest you misunderstand what I'm saying, this is what I mean by set apart. And then we we start this scene, a couple of scenes actually, where Moses is going to interact with God. He's going to go down, he's going to tell the the people some things, the people are going to prepare themselves to meet with God and then it's just going to be chaotic as God descends on the mountain and there's thunder and lightning the mountain itself trembles. And, And all of this, I think what God is doing is He's communicating His holiness to them. Lest we misunderstand what He means by the call to be a holy nation, it's as if He's saying, let me show you just a glimpse of what holiness truly is. And so... I'm going to give you just three words to kind of organize the, the latter part of the chapter. Three different ideas here that I think help us make sense of it. Uh, the first is covenant. The second is consecration. And the third is confirmation. And we're going to define each of those and make sense of them. But we'll start with the word covenant. Uh, a covenant we've, we've talked about, that's just a solemn agreement between two people. Uh, in this case, the agreement is between Yahweh, God, the Lord, and His people, Israel, as a a nation, And the, the language here, the structure of it, it's, it's like this ancient treaty that a, a powerful nature, nation would make with a weaker nation. And kind of, we're going to protect you, we're going to care for you, provided that you do these things. You pay your taxes and things like that, right? It's, it's in this treaty kind of language. And if you read verse 7 through 9, you find the, the people agree to it. They're like, yeah, that sounds great. Well, we'll do exactly what you say, Lord. Uh, they're a bit naive, they don't quite realize how difficult this is going to be, but I think they're genuine. You know, not unlike when the disciples tell tell Jesus, "Well, we won't abandon you. Right? We'll be with you to the end." And then some guards show up, and things start to get, you know, a little interesting. And all of a sudden, they all flee, right? And it's it's, it's similar to that here. Uh, Moses is the mediator. He's going between God and the people, and he's communicating on behalf of each of them to one another. Uh, in the midst of this covenant. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like the officiant of a wedding ceremony. Uh, the, the minister who stands up at the front and, and officiates or mediates the covenant being made in a wedding. Uh, that's on my mind because this afternoon I'll, I'll be going down to Charleston um, to uh, get ready for Josh and Grace's wedding. Uh, they get married tomorrow evening, so you'll be praying for them. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, I guess. Uh, a number of us are involved in that. And, uh, you know, whenever I I get the opportunity to officiate a wedding, I always say it like that. I don't like when people say I'm marrying them. That, to me, just confuses my mind, and I don't like to confuse others. And so um, I'm not marrying them. Uh, They're marrying each other. I'm just going to make sure they actually do it. Um, (laughs) I'm officiating the ceremony is the way I like to say it. Uh, Whenever I get asked to do that, I always, the first thing I like to do when I meet with a couple, like, for Pyramidale Council and things like that is I just like to say thanks like, this is, I can't imagine a greater privilege. This is the most, to your life to this point, it's the most important day of your life. And it's, it's one of those rare moments in life where you get to actually pick who's going to be up there beside you. And, and it's really significant. And I, I'm just honored that you'd even ask me to be a part of it. Uh, maybe you're not giving as much thought to it as I am, but I just, I'm really honored you would ask me to, to be up there. I, I consider it a great privilege. Uh, But then I have a second conversation with them, and and this is no issue with Josh and Grace. I'm just talking about them because they're about to get married. But the second second conversation I always have with couples is, now look, if you want me to officiate your wedding, I need to tell you what I think a wedding is. And in order for you to understand what I think a wedding is, you need to understand what I think marriage is and what I think God says marriage is intended to be, uh, this sacred covenant between two people that is intended to be lifelong. It's intended to be permanent. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up at your wedding, if you want me to do this. You know, <laughs> we haven't signed anything yet, so I, this is always sort of a warning. Sometimes this is a, like a short conversation is the last time we talk. But most of the time, this is just, you know, bringing some clarity. But like, if you want me to officiate your wedding, I'd be glad to do it. I would consider it a great privilege. I'll circle the date on my calendar. I'll look forward to it. But here's some things I want to say if I'm a part of your wedding. Because here are some things God has said about marriage. And I think it's important that you begin at the right place. Making a covenant is a serious thing. It's a serious thing to make a covenant. It's a serious thing to break a covenant. And in one sense, God is he's, he's drawing their attention to the seriousness of this covenant by what follows. So, so that's the first word there is covenant. The second one is consecration. That's not a word we use a whole lot. Uh, it basically means to set apart, to make holy, to devote to to the Lord. and the the way it comes into play here, it's actually the word uh, God uses. He, he tells the people to consecrate themselves and prepare because he's going to come down in three days. He's going to visit them on the mountain and he wants them to be, Ready. So he gives them all these these different rules. There are these these uh, like physical actions. They're to clean themselves. There are limita- limitations. They're going to practice abstinence for a few days. All of these things are meant to call to mind their spiritual needs, right? The the idea is he doesn't want them to approach this moment as if it is ordinary. He wants them to recognize how odd and extraordinary this moment is going to be that we're going to read about at the end of the chapter there. He says, on the third day, you will hear a a trumpet. It's probably the the horn of a ram, what we call a shofar, right? Uh, You're going to hear the horn, you're going to hear the ram, and and it's going to bring you into this moment that is absolutely sacred. And it's cool to think about, you know, sometimes sounds really do kind of bring us into moments like that, Um, I had the the privilege recently to be at uh, Oscar's dad's uh, funeral. His dad was a World War II vet, and uh, I didn't realize it as I was planning to go, but uh, when I got there, I realized they were going to play taps, and it had been a while since I had had been at a military funeral where uh, the bugle played taps and actually did it live, and there was a soldier there doing it. And you you, you don't have to really know the people and know all the details to get caught up in that moment. You know, there's something about the playing of that song, of uh, that, that memorable tune. It just kind of brings you into this moment. And, and, and so that, that's what sounds can do, right? I mean, you, you hear certain things and they just kind of bring you into this sacred moment and realize something significant is happening here. That's what God wants the people to experience as they clean themselves, they limit themselves, and they prepare for three whole days for him to come down and visit them on the mountain. And then the third day comes, they hear the trumpet, and, and they they experience God. They experience God in His in His imminence. Some, some of what's going on in the background here, I think it's worth uh, kind of thinking about some terms to, to make sense of it. Is there's this tension in this scene between what theologians call God's transcendence and his his imminence. Transcendence just means far away. He's, he is set apart. He is distant. He is unlike anything in this world. So you better prepare for His coming. Right? It's, it's not just another Monday morning where you're just going to walk up to the mountain and wait to see what He says. But you need to get yourself ready. The God of this world is coming, and He is utterly distinct from anything or anyone you've ever encountered before. But he's also a god who's capable of being imminent. Imminent means near, close. He can come to us. He can manifest his presence among us. And of course we just celebrated the the chief way of of him expressing that through the inc- incarnation, right? And so so God is both transcendent and imminent. And there's this tension here in this story of those two realities. And I just want to point out I think we live in a day <laughs> of almost ultra-eminence, if you think about it. I mean, I, I would argue you see it in, in, in most churches in their worship when you compare it to how the ancient church worshipped, like just our sense of familiarity with God. Uh, I, would, I would argue you, you hear it in the way we speak of God, the language we use. It's almost like we're losing sight of the transcendence of a holy God who is unlike us. And, and I think it's fair to note that we live in an age where it's going to be particularly easy to do that. And just just think about that idea of imminence and nearness for a moment, and how many things that used to be distant in human reality are now near and close to us. And we have uh, politicians who announce their candidacy for president for, for, for president uh, in their kitchen. <laughs> on Instagram while they're washing their dishes, right? I mean, these sort of intimate moments. You would have dreamed of, of seeing Dwight D. Eisenhower do that, right? We, we, we can imagine, you know, like after a sporting event, the, the guys don't leave the court before there are 50 microphones in their face wanting to hear all their thoughts on what just happened. There's, there's no sense of, of privacy Anymore. All of uh, social media has brought all of our friends and family literally to our fingertips. Right? I mean, we, d- we don't have to wonder about things anymore. We don't have to wonder about things anymore. We, we, we come up with an idea. We think of a thought. You know, transcendence. Wasn't there a movie a few years ago? I, I can't remember. What do we do? We get our phone. Ten seconds. 2014, Johnny Depp. Transcendence. Now we all know, right? There's There's no mystery. Remaining. Everything is imminent. Anything we want to know, almost anything we want to experience, almost anyone we want to communicate with is imminent and near to us. And if we're not careful, in a world of ultra imminence, we will lose sight of, as the people of God, this God who is both imminent and transcendent, this God who is other who is different, who is distant, not because he's not kind, because of who he is and who we are not. And so for people like us who live in an age like ours, I think this final couple of paragraphs are extremely important to just remind us who God is. So we had covenant, we had consecration And then when you get to verse 16 through 25, we'll call that confirmation because what God is doing here is He's demonstrating His holiness. And I think all of the different things that happen here are meant to display to us and confirm to Israel just exactly who they're dealing with. So look at verse 16. It's it's time for God to come visit. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings in a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is what happens when God arrives. When when that transcendent God, who is nothing like anyone you know, shows up, no one is, no one is casual in that moment. No one is comfortable. They tremble. They're scared. What's he going to do to us? They see his power. Moses goes out. He brings the people out there. They take their stand. And then look at verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. You think these people know what that looks like? They used to make bricks for a living. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. This is our God. He is transcendent. He is unlike any reality we can imagine. And yet here he comes into earth, into our experience. But when he does, it shakes the foundations of what we know to be true. The mountains tremble. And again, I think if we're not careful, we will lose sight of this in our age. Well, we kind of always know what our president's thinking because he's five minutes removed from a tweet about it, right? We can't imagine a place on the planet that we couldn't be to within 24 hours from now if he had the money and the, the will to do so. It's hard to think of a fact that you can't find the answer to within a few moments if you've got Wi-Fi right? Everything is imminent to us. And yet God in His holiness is so distant and so transcendent, so far and so unlike us that when He comes, it shakes this world to its core. So the last few verses there, the Lord says to Moses, He gives this warning to the people. He He says, go down, tell the people, don't come up here. Don't touch this mountain. Now, I read that and I think, is that really necessary? Like, were people trying to get up the mountain at that moment? I mean, I think if I'm standing at the foot of a mountain and it's engulfed in smoke and fire and it starts to tremble, I think I'm going to be backing up, not running toward it. Like, Moses, go check that out for us. Bring back a report. We'll just stay down here. But for some reason, God felt necessary to say, do not touch this mountain. I've made it holy ground and... and this moment that is happening right here is so sacred. Don't profane it with your presence. That's what God says to his people. But then here's perhaps the greatest mystery of all. God, in his awful, terrifying, matchless power, speaks out of that thundercloud. And what does he say to Moses? Come up to the mountain. Come up here, I'm going to talk to you. You're going to represent the people. I'm going to give you some things. You're going to bring it back down to them. Next chapter is going to begin with what we know as the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. That's the, this is the preamble to that scene. And God is flexing and showing his people, this is who Moses is going to talk to. So when he comes back down with the message, you better listen. It's mighty important. But God and His mercy is not only this, this transcendent God that we can't imagine drawing near to, He is this imminent God who comes to us and He speaks to Moses and He brings a mediator into the situation. He says, you come to me and I'll send you back down and I will have a relationship with this people. So Moses is going to represent the people there. Now, if we're going to rightly understand this as Christians, we've got to do just a little bit of translating at the end here to make sense of all that we've read, right? There are some truths we have to hold in, in tension. We're not Israelites. Uh, we're not waiting on Moses to come back down the mountain. We, we can read ahead and find out what happens next. But don't miss this. We worship the same God that descended on Mount Sinai. He hasn't gotten simpler. right? He, he hasn't gotten less holy since this moment. He wouldn't be less terrifying if He arrived among us this morning. He is still majestic. He is still holy. He remains transcendent. And He would absolutely terrify us to our core if we were to experience Him today in the way that the Israelites experienced Him on Mount Sinai. But what is different is He has come to us in His Son. And he invites us now into his presence. So the old covenant scene here is not the same as our new covenant experience. And there's a great contrast to this in the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read a few verses here that really will give us a nice landing place for this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24. This is the author of Hebrews is contrasting this old covenant scene with the experience that you and I get to have because of Christ. He says, beginning in verse 18, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's Mount Sinai. That's the author of Hebrews uh, reminding his readers about this moment back in Exodus 19. But notice in verse 18, he said, you have not come to that mountain, right? Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So there's this contrast here that we've got to see if we're to understand this old covenant scene from our new covenant experience. Mount Sinai was a place of darkness and gloom, right? Mount Zion is a welcoming city, in the midst of a celebration. And the author of Hebrews says, you haven't come to that mountain, you've come to this one. Mount Sinai, the sounds there were terrifying. They were upsetting to the people. Don't tell us anything else, we cannot bear it. The sounds of Mount Zion are inviting, they're comforting, like angels in festal gatherings saying, come and worship alongside of us. At Mount Sinai, the people are told to consecrate themselves, Watch this. At Mount Zion, we are told that we have been consecrated by the blood of Jesus. You don't come to that mountain because you're covered in the blood of Christ, which speaks a better word. So so we're not standing out on this mountain waiting for the law, but we're standing over here on the shoulders of one who kept that law in our place because he died in our place, because he was raised from the dead. Now we approach this same God, but we approach him in in grace, wrapped in mercy. We experience his love firsthand. So we are called to be holy by a transcendent, holy God, And we're invited into the experience of representing him to the nations because of what he has done on our behalf. I think what we get from Exodus 19 is a reminder of just how holy God is and just how kind his grace has been to each of us. We ought not tread lightly on it. Because we have a God who, when he descends, upsets mountains. But we ought not to utterly fear Him either, because He has come to us, and He invites us to come to Him. So we're going to take communion as as kind of a a celebration of this grace that we've received in Christ. Uh, The communion bread and juice we take back there, it reminds us that Christ has come. Uh, He came in the flesh. Uh, we, We deal with physical elements this morning. Because this transcendent God came into our world and made himself accessible to us. But, but none of us walk these aisles back to, that, uh, back to those tables on our own merit. All right, we may be treasured possessions, but we are treasured because God has set his affection on us. So I, I pray as we're taking communion this morning that we could take it with just a, a, a special air of gratitude as we think about the God who in His grace has invited us to come into His presence, the the God who, like an eagle, has swooped down into the howling wilderness of our own doing and has set us in a safe place in His presence. But as we do, we, we do wisely to remind ourselves of the warning that Paul gives the Corinthians, do not take of these things lightly. Don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. These are sacred things. These are sacred moments. And it's a serious matter to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I just want to invite you as you're preparing for communion this morning, of course, if you're a believer, if you're trusting in the grace of God in Christ, you're invited to the communion table. Again, none of us are getting up and going back there because we've got it all together. But at the same time, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you need to know it just would not be appropriate for you to handle those things. It simply would not be so. It doesn't mean you need to feel left out. We're not trying to, to be mean or ugly. We're we're just drawing the line for you that God has drawn, a holy God who said to His own people, don't you dare come up this mountain. But I also want to remind you as believers that when we take communion, we we're not just... Affirming something we did long time ago. Like one time I believed this and I trusted Jesus and I'm just going to take communion forever. We're actually affirming, I believe this now, I'm trusting in Jesus now, and I'm taking seriously my personal call to walk in holiness before a holy God. And so you have to ask yourself, is it, is it right and appropriate for me to take communion today? Now the point of that is not i got to go home, i got to get my act together, i got to get my life in order, and then maybe someday I'll be good enough for God. That's not the point at all. The point is, if you're a rescued person, you have to ask yourself, am I truly acting like it? And if not, then you don't need to go take communion. You need to repent. You need to turn from that which is unholy, that which is profane, and remind yourself of the holiness of the God we're talking about. And then next week you come to the table and you come with joy knowing that you are a treasured possession of a holy God. Let me pray for us and then the band will come and we'll take communion. Lord, thank you for your, your word that, that paints this picture for us. My words feel so inadequate to describe your, your holiness. I'm thankful that we have these scenes that call us to account and remind us of the charge you've placed upon us. Help us, Lord, to walk in your ways. Help us to be obedient to your word. Lord, in an age where everyone and everything seems so near and imminent to us, Lord, help us to be mindful each day of how utterly different you are than any reality we can imagine in this world. And yet, Lord, don't let us push you too far away in our mind, but let us hold this biblical tension together that you are both distant and and terrifying and holy. And yet in your mercy, you come to us and you swoop down and you scoop us up when we need you most. And so, Lord, we know we can can trust you for that, and we pray that we would walk in faith trusting you, even as we walk to the communion tables this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name.